welcome to this edition of NASA Talks. Today, we will be discussing part two of NASA's legislative agenda. This podcast was recorded the day after the agenda was released on Capitol Hill. Now let's turn things over to Mike Canning, NASA's Director of Policy and Government Affairs, and Mike Pichek, NASA's current President and Vermont's Commissioner of Financial Regulation. With that, maybe we can kind of pivot down to uh, to the third principle in the agenda, um, which is um, fostering capital formation and market transparency. Can you tell us what this is about? Yeah, so this is uh, another item that, uh, you know, for the first time uh, we're calling on uh, Congress to really examine uh, our public markets, uh, our private markets, and then sort of this in-between, this sort of quasi-public, quasi-private marketplace. Uh, There's been uh, a lot of regulation. There's been a lot of uh, statutory change at the federal level trying to promote capital formation, uh, trying to um, promote small business, medium business, uh, you know, smaller reporting companies, everything up and down the line. Uh, But there's really been these sort of competing interests of, you know, keeping uh, companies private longer uh, and also encouraging companies to go public. And in both of those regards, you know, we don't want Main Street investors to have been left behind. We want to have an an examination of how are are these various exemptions and and, uh, statutory and and regulatory exemptions playing together? How are they working for the greater capital markets in our country? Uh, Is there a different way of approaching this issue? Obviously, we all want to have responsible capital formation for the benefit uh, of American investors. But uh, we want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to participate in that, that it's not limited to a certain segment um, and that they're not negative repercussions that we're not uh, not realizing. So that's why I think that examination of, of how these public and private and quasi-private markets are interplaying with each other is, is really critically important. Great. I'm glad. So, so and just for the, for the benefit of the listener, just, you know, what we mean by public private and, and quasi-private markets are, you know, the public public securities markets are the stock exchange. When you think of it, the, the NYSE or the NASDAQ, that's the public market. The private market is the what used to be known as the, the private placement market. It's, it's, it's the market for shares that can only be sold to wealthy individuals, accredited investors. Um, they're usually early investors. These are risky, risky deals. They, they are often illiquid. Uh, they don't trade on any sort of exchange. And Frequently, the company issuing the shares does not disclose a lot of information um, enough to really even value the security. So, um, and then, and then these, when we say quasi-public securities, these are your crowdfunded securities, your Reg A securities, your maybe even your EGC emerging growth company yeah, for sure. securities. Um, and I think what NASA is calling on Congress to do is look at this framework that was sort of developed in an ad hoc way. And see if it makes sense. Mm-hmm. See if some of these exemptions aren't duplicative, if others are necessary, if it couldn't be reordered in a more cohesive way that yep. benefits investors and market efficiency. Yeah, and, and the, you know, exactly right. I mean, benefits the markets, benefits the businesses, benefits the investors. I think oftentimes we think of capital formation and business cycle or business growth as sort of a continuum that you start at A, then you go to B, then you go to C, then you go to D, then you go to whatever. And usually that whatever was going public, right? And today that's not necessarily the, the line that, that businesses are following. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think we need to think about that and, and, and analyze that. When company, companies stay uh, private longer, particularly really important companies in our society, you know, that means something. I mean, they don't right. have the type of oversight. Uh, they don't have the type of corporate governance necessarily that a lot of private or public companies do. They don't have the transparency that a lot of public companies do. Um, so it goes even beyond the securities realm of these companies that are really impacting, you know, Americans' lives and, and whether they should be uh, publicly traded. 
uh, and have uh, some of those um, transparency and corporate governance items that come with it. Talking more generally about uh, private offerings, is this an area where state regulators see a lot of fraud? Yeah, sure. I mean, private offerings have always been uh, on our sort of hit list, if you will, or top five, um, you know, enforcement actions to watch or the enforcement actions that we've seen. Uh, so it continues to be so today. Uh, we've also called for, um, in our federal agenda, for some expansion in terms of uh, regulatory tools. Uh, we want to have Reg D, 506 filings, be pre-filed uh, so that regulators have an opportunity to see them before uh, they are in our marketplace and being offered. Uh, we also think it's helpful to have a closing uh, report uh, so that we see how much has been raised uh, from what state and, and from what type of investor. Uh, that will be information that's critical just to understand our capital markets better, uh, but also in terms of state and federal regulators uh, being able to police those markets. Uh, so it continues to be a focus for, for enforcement, uh, and our agenda recognizes that by calling for um, our authority to have greater oversight, uh, greater tools. Terrific. And then I think kind of closing out this principle, uh, one thing we talk about is um, modernizing the accredited investor definition. Um, could you tell our listeners what the accredited investor definition is? Yeah. It's very important. yeah, it's a very critical piece of this private uh, marketplace, right? Uh, so the accredited investor essentially is someone uh, that has either the sophistication themselves or the financial means to, you know, get someone to have this type of sophistication for them. So there's financial standards. Uh, you have to have a million dollars uh, in assets, excluding your primary residency, uh, or you have to be making uh, over $200,000, I think it is, for three years uh, before you're qualified as an accredited investor. So right now, there are these sort of, you know, very specific financial metrics for how you qualify to be a, an accredited investor. Um, they haven't gone up since 1982. That's when the accredited investor definition uh, that we know today came about. Uh, so there's some question about, you know, as, uh, as other folks' assets have grown, as, as uh, salaries have grown, as inflation has grown, uh, but those definitions have stayed the same in terms of the financial requirements. You know, what does that mean? And we should examine that. Um, but, uh, you know, this is not a, not a particularly easy issue, right? I mean, right. if you're in Vermont and you have a million dollars in assets, uh, that uh, is a, a lot of money. If you're in New York City, maybe it's not uh, quite as much money. And, and so there is there are these, you know, geographic issues and regional issues that uh, that plays into the debate a little bit. Uh, but certainly one of the things we've been hearing about is more uh, qualitative measures. This has been something that's been uh, talked about from advocates on a number of different uh, stakeholders, a number of different sides of this discussion about trying to get some more qualitative measures in the accredited investor definition, um, which I think, you know, it's worth exploring. But again, it's a difficult area to yeah. figure out exactly yeah. what measures. And when I say qualitative, I mean, for example, if you're if you hold the series uh, seven, or if you have, a, if you're a licensed attorney, or you're a li you have an MBA, I mean, what you know, what are those measures going to be? And I think we've all met people that hold a Series Seven or a law degree or an MBA that we wouldn't trust with our money. <laughs> so you know, it's tough. And but um, but when you're talking about qualitative measures, as we've talked about, Mike, I think you know that's great that they can analyze the risk, but can they withstand the risk financially? I think you have to right. think maybe you can limit their exposure. You can allow them to invest up to a certain percentage of their income or a certain percentage of their assets, maybe. We've seen these types of caps be employed in other contexts recently in capital formation. Um, so I think we're eager to have this discussion, but I think uh, we need to, again, at the basis of it, think about can the person sufficiently analyze the risk and can they withstand the risk of loss? Right, right. Those are the two, um, you know, the, the, the two um, imperatives for being an accredited investor. Yeah. 
you're sophisticated and you have the ability to withstand loss. Under the current regime, we kind of are allowing income and net worth to be a proxy for both of those right. things. We're not looking at actual sophistication, yeah. um, which results in some people being excluded who maybe should be included, and and conversely, um, um, some people being included yeah, who, be, yeah. who maybe shouldn't be, such as, say, a retiree, someone who's qualifying by virtue of a retirement nest egg that's a million yeah. two. You or know? someone so, that's had an inheritance that doesn't exactly. have the sophistication exactly. or the wherewithal. These millennial generation, right, that's standing to inherit trillions of dollars of wealth. And, right. you know, they think they're financial experts and, and they're not, unfortunately. But, you know, they're susceptible to these bad decisions, bad actors. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, I, you know, um, we could chat about this for longer, but I do want to keep us moving. Um, and so, you know, our final uh, principle of, of, of the agenda this year is ensuring investor rights in a 21st century marketplace. What does this mean? Yeah, so, you know, this is last but not least, because these are really important uh, items here. Um, we talk about uh, securing investor choice uh, and mandatory arbitration uh, has been continued to been a, a, be an issue, a primary issue for NASA for a decade. Uh, many contracts, if not uh, majority of contracts, if not the vast majority of contracts, include mandatory arbitration clauses between financial professionals and their clients. Uh, we want to um, eliminate that behavior, eliminate that um, ability to do that, because we think investors need choice when it comes to how is, how is their dispute going to be resolved. Uh, certainly, um, our survey information indicates that investors want choice. Uh, this has been a long-standing uh, item, like I said. Um, so, uh, again, including more transparency, including choice for investors uh, in resolving disputes with their financial professionals uh, is a key, key point. And these are, in, in, in these are mandatory arbitration contracts that investors are required to sign before there even is a dispute. Right? Yeah, right, before exactly. They even, before there's a dispute, before it's, you know, the facts and circumstances are known. Yeah. They're just waiving, exactly forced right. to waive their right. And they may never have a dispute, but when the dispute comes... And you decide, geez, I really would like to have a trial court in XYZ state or bring this to XYZ uh, place. I mean, you can't, you don't have that option. I mean, you're forced into the mandatory arbitration process, uh, which has its uh, has its ups and its downs. But uh, certainly, investors should be able to make that informed decision uh, when a dispute arises. Maybe they want to go the arbitration route, but they shouldn't be mandated. You know, this is an area where Congress was also close to legislating in the Dodd Frank Act. Um, Dodd Frank. Uh, included a provision that gave the SEC the authority to um, to limit, condition, or outright prohibit uh, mandatory arbitration, pre-dispute mandatory arbitration clauses. So, so that's an, a very important part um, of, of this principle. Um, beyond that, you know, we talk about um, making harmed investors whole. Yeah. What's that? So th this is a critical piece as well. I mean, we talk about uh, having a choice when you have a dispute. Uh, this is when you've had a dispute. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you've been awarded a, a judgment because you've had a loss. Uh, and so you've gone through the arbitration. Yeah. They, 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 they for the, you know, They've already forced been to forced go on arbitration. <laughs> so you went through the arbitration and you won. Yeah, you won. You were great. Right. You had a great day at the arbitration and you got your award. Uh, but when it comes to getting those awards paid, you know, you're left holding the bag. They don't. They don't. Uh, they don't get paid. They go unpaid. How uh, often do they so, go unpaid? Yes, yeah, uh, it's a pretty significant amount of the time. Uh, Twenty-seven percent of the time. Uh, between 2012 and 2016, uh, between uh, in 2017, 36% of the time, uh, these uh, arbitration awards went unpaid. 
Uh, and that is a, a staggering loss when you total it all up, just under $200 million of loss to investors. Uh, so a really significant number, uh, both in terms of how often they go unpaid uh, and the aggregate amount as well. Basically a third of these these awards. Yeah, right. So it's a serious issue. That's and, real, yeah. and uh, you know, we've been, again, this is another issue we've been advocating on for, for quite some time. Uh, I think there's some interest. I mean, certainly FINRA, I mean, this goes, I should... You know, it would be remiss if I didn't say that FINRA has taken this issue seriously in the recent past, and they've made progress, uh, and they've remained committed and focused on it. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to get there at the end of the day, but uh, we need to keep the momentum up on this issue and try to think how we can mitigate this and how we can prevent uh, unpaid awards in the future. Couldn't agree more. So in the minute or two we have left, um, which of these priorities are you sort of most excited uh, to work on? This year, yeah. So I mean, there's. I'm excited about a lot of them. I'm excited that they're they're actionable items. Uh, I'm excited about the millennial issues. I'm excited uh, about uh, issues related to cybersecurity, uh, financial technology, uh, and I'm also excited about a lot of these bread and butter investor protection issues that I think uh, have a lot of momentum this year. I'm hoping. Uh, you know, I think our agenda not only is is actionable in a way maybe it hasn't been in the past, uh, but I also think it's achievable in a way that it hasn't been in the past and, and looking forward uh, to accomplish, accomplishing a number of these uh, important priorities. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to working on those with you. Great. Uh, Mike Pichik, uh, thank you for joining us for this episode. Yeah, thank you. My and, pleasure. Uh, excellent job yesterday on the Hill. Thank you. Thank you to you as well. Thank you both for discussing the second part of NASA's legislative agenda. Make sure you tune in next time for more NASA Talks. To read NASA's complete legislative agenda or for more information on safe investing, please visit us at nasa.org.